0: Well, I'll tell you what, I got to spend all day yesterday with an open Bible, along with guys from this church, which was a joy, thanks especially to our guy Paul Wood, who put in more work than anybody else. Yesterday fueled me up, and then I came here and I got to sing with you all about Jesus, and that fueled me up. And that congregational prayer, thank you Marilyn and Dennis, that fueled me up. And a lot of good stuff from Jesus in his words. I don't know if we need a sermon, right? (laughs) I'm fueled up here. But we have some beautiful truths in front of us to think about today we will begin with an illustration. It was the most legendary of all job postings. In 1913, Ernest Shackleton was preparing for an epic voyage to Antarctica, and we're told that he posted these words in London in the Times, quote, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold." Long hours of complete darkness. Safe return? Doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. Ernest Shackleton. And as the legend goes, after this ad, Shackleton received 5,000 applicants to travel with him to Antarctica. Now, since I am a pastor... With two degrees in history, I feel conscientiously compelled to tell you the sad news that there is no evidence that this job posting was ever actually published in the Times. I know, I'm sorry to every business leader who's used that motivational quote before. Shackleton did write to the Times on several occasions, and yes, he traveled on epic voyages to Antarctica, but as best as I can tell, the posting itself is only a legend. But it's a legend that has lived on, and a legend that has found its way into several of Shackleton's biographies. Why? There's a reason why this modern myth is so believable and so often quoted. Why? Because there is a courage in our chests that will rise up for a mission so glorious that it is worth suffering or even dying for. And in our passage today, we read about a short-term mission trip that Jesus sent His disciples out into. And to be sure, this is not the record of their ultimate commission. This is not the record of the great commission in Matthew 28. Rather, it's a record of their first commission. Their first short-term missionary venture. And this mission would come with small wages in the context of deep darkness. And yet, according to... To Jesus. This mission is worth living for, and if necessary, even dying for. How would Jesus prepare his disciples for the mission ahead of them? Well, you heard the passage read a moment ago. It's long. And it has opportunities for a lot of fascinating tangents in it, right? And so I, I had to resign myself earlier this week as I studied this passage that I simply won't be able to comment on everything today or else we'll be here till midnight. But as we pay attention to the first mission trip of Jesus' 12 disciples, I hope that we'll catch at least four enduring lessons For life on mission. The first enduring lesson for life on mission relates to the missionary's task. Our passage begins by introducing us to the twelve disciples, to the people who will be sent out on this task. Their names are listed out for us: Simon Peter, Andrew, James, Bar Zebedee, John Bar Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James Bar Alpheus, Thaddeus, Simeon the or Simon the Zealot, and Judas called Iscariot, who would betray him. And as I read this list of twelve names, this list kind of hits me in two different ways. At first glance, it reminds me of the role that these 12 disciples play in the wider story of redemption. Much earlier in the storyline of Scripture, much earlier in the story of redemption, there was a man named Israel with 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And their legacy, their lineage would be a family line that carried the promises to Abraham. The hope of a family that would bring God's blessing to every family and every nation on the planet. And now as Jesus calls 12 disciples, He's identifying 12 leaders in his family whose spiritual legacy, whose spiritual lineage will carry the promise of Abraham truly to every family, to every nation on the planet. As we read these 12 names, we're reminded that Jesus is laying a foundation for his global church, which is built, quote, on the foundation of the apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20. So at one level, we read this list of names and we hear it in the wider scope of the storyline of Scripture, but... As we read this list of names, we also hear something more specific related to this missionary task that Jesus is calling these 12 men into. We realize that the king of heaven knows his disciples by name. The savior of the world calls his own by name. the King of kings and the Lord of lords doesn't just offer generic and general proclamations. He knows us. He knows you as His disciple. And as He calls us into mission, He does so calling each one of us by name. In this short-term mission trip, The task of these missionaries, these disciples sent out, will be be to demonstrate something of the kingdom through the power of the Spirit over darkness. These missionaries, these twelve apostles will heal and raise and cleanse and cast out in order to demonstrate the authority of God and His kingdom over all the powers of darkness that stand against Him in this world. In this short-term mission trip, the kingdom of heaven will not only be demonstrated through these disciples called to mission by name through demonstrations of spiritual power. But the kingdom will also need to be modeled through a lifestyle of radical simplicity. Heaven's ambassadors here on earth will not take more clothing than they need. Heaven's ambassadors here on earth won't carry a staff or a weapon even for personal protection. They will rely on the hospitality of others, and yet they will not accept financial payments from the lost sheep they seek to reach. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is best represented through a lifestyle of radical integrity. And humility and simplicity so that no unnecessary barrier will be set in the way of hearing the message. But in this short-term mission trip, the task will be to represent the kingdom of heaven ultimately through a proclamation. Through a message that must be delivered. In this short-term mission trip, as Jesus tells His disciples about the task ahead, the mission of representing the kingdom of heaven, it involves nothing less than a message that must be proclaimed. A message that must be shouted from rooftops if necessary. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we can read the core message of John the Baptist in his ministry. Quote, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, John the Baptist saw that the great day of the Lord, the day of divine judgment, was approaching. And if the kingdom of heaven is drawing near to a world full of darkness and rebellion... Then even the most religious people on the planet need to prepare to turn and to bow in humility before heaven's king. That's what John the Baptist preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, we read the core message of Jesus in his own earthly ministry. It reads like this, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds familiar, right? When the Gospel of Luke summarizes the teaching of Jesus, it says that, quote, repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in His name to all nations. This is a slightly longer way of saying repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we read in Matthew chapter 10 verse 7 that as the disciples are sent out to represent the kingdom of heaven, as they're sent with a task to represent heaven and heaven's message, they're sent with the same message. Quote, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These disciples are sent to tell people that the king has come and a day of judgment is approaching. Now, it will be obvious to some of us that some of the details in this section of Matthew chapter 10 are specific to this short-term missionary journey that these 12 disciples were being sent on. And yet... There are elements of the mission that echo in our lives today. I mean, we may not see somebody healed every single day, although I do believe that in order to demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom, our king often is pleased to heal in order to demonstrate his nearness. We may not see healings every day, and yet we rely on the power of the same spirit. I don't think it's wrong for disciples of Jesus today to own more than two pairs of clothing. I do, at least, and I kind of hope you do as well. And yet, like the disciples on this first missionary journey, there's a certain integrity and humility and simplicity of lifestyle that we are still called to so that no unnecessary stumbling blocks will be put in the way of hearing the message of the kingdom. And of course, Jesus Christ has now given His life as a sacrifice sacrifice for our sins, opening the way to the Father. And yet we continue to proclaim to those around us, repent, because King Jesus has come near and the day of judgment really is approaching Perhaps most significant is the difference that we read in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. And yet by the end of the book of Matthew, what do we read in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples among all the nations of the Gentiles, among all the families of the earth, as far as the promise of Abraham extends. What's going on here in this passage? For a while now, the disciples have been watching Jesus do ministry. You know, we've used the NASCAR analogy before. If you've been around, you're familiar with it. It's kind of like the 12 disciples are watching Jesus do the cool stuff. And it's like at a NASCAR thing. There's one person in the car racing around the track. And everybody's up in the stands like, yeah, way to go, dude, doing the stuff, right? And so the disciples up to this point in Matthew's gospel are in the stands cheering their, cheering their along and saying, yeah, keep going, dude. Keep doing the cool stuff. And Jesus gets out of the car and he waves to his 12 disciples and he says, ministry as I've designed it is not like NASCAR why don't you all come down from the stands I've got some cars here waiting for you he invites them to get in and to drive a few laps but listen why is this recorded here not merely as a memento so that those 12 disciples can remember their memorable NASCAR journey years ago this is written for churches in Matthew's day So that through this, Matthew can reach out to the people sitting in the congregation who hear about the ministry of the apostles and might be tempted to think, yeah, go cool dudes riding around the track. And Matthew says, no, I'm writing this to say to you, come on down, there are some cars here for you. And even today, as we read this passage... My conviction is that the Holy Spirit wants to use these verses. Even as they explain something unique that happened at a single time in history as Jesus sent out His twelve disciples on one specific missionary journey, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to use this picture to say to some of us here today gathered in this place in Aurora, come down off the stands. When you get in the car, I've got something for you to experience as well. Christian ministry is not just a one-person-does-it-while-everybody-else-watches kind of thing. Christian ministry, by the design of Jesus, involves all disciples. You and I are, di- are invited into what Jesus began. This week, uh, my wife Katie and I uh, got to go to an event with Nathan and Katie Krause. uh, Thinking about an event run by a Christian organization that seeks to support families who are involved in, families that are involved in foster care. And I'm hearing about the thousands of children in foster care here in Illinois. And it's just breaking my heart. And then I hear the heart of Jesus saying, some of y'all, I've got some lost sheep not only over in Israel, but I've got some lost sheep here in Illinois. And of course, we find lost sheep not only in the foster care system. I'm over at Wayside once a week talking with men whose lives have experienced some kind of crisis or another. Some of you are over at LifeSpring Ministries spending an hour a week with a woman who has experienced some sort of crisis or another. Some of you are making your way over to visit older folks, in nursing homes who who are dying for somebody to just treat them like they have some dignity. You see, this ministry stuff that Jesus is sending people out into, it's not just that Jesus assumes we've got nothing better to do. Jesus cares about lost sheep. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus walks among crowds and what does he see? He sees sheep without a shepherd. And with compassion in his heart, he moves toward them. And as he sends the twelve disciples out, what is he doing? What is the task he's sending them to? He's sending them to go and take the message of the kingdom to lost sheep from Israel. And today, what is the Holy Spirit calling us to? What task are we invited into? The Holy Spirit is calling disciples by name to go and represent the kingdom of Jesus in the power of the Spirit with a lifestyle of integrity and humility and simplicity. With the simple message about King Jesus and his kingdom. Why? So that lost sheep from Israel. Lost sheep in Indonesia. Lost sheep in Illinois. And lost sheep in every part of the planet. Can come to know him. And his great mercy. That's the task to represent the kingdom. I've spent more time than I should have on this point, and it's a long passage, so we're going to have to speed up a little. A second enduring lesson for mission. We've noticed the missionary's task here in this passage. We also need to recognize a lesson about the missionary's opposition. Jesus is very clear about this, isn't he, in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus is very clear about the danger that he knows we move toward when we enter the mission field. He's very clear about it. And this passage shows us a few different kinds of opposition that we might experience in the pathway of following Jesus and His mission of bringing the message of the kingdom to lost sheep. One kind of opposition that we might face is opposition from religious folks. Their synagogues, Jesus speaks about. There are some religious, righteous, and upstanding people around us who will not appreciate the message of King Jesus and his coming kingdom. And so some good, righteous-looking, upstanding folk will oppose us. There's also government-sponsored opposition that is mentioned here in this passage, being taken into courts. And maybe we think of ways that that kind of opposition can be experienced in places like China or in places like Afghanistan. But we also need to remember that such opposition can also be faced from governments in places that purport to be Christian. I don't know if you've read much Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And his writings about the cost of discipleship and his experience of facing fierce opposition backed even by the government, even when the government claimed to be doing its work in the name of Christ. There's real opposition that we may face from religious folk. There's real opposition that we might face in government-backed kinds of situations But then there's an even more painful kind of opposition that comes up a few times in this passage. It's named most specifically in verse 36. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. I mean, it's one thing if like the religious leader of another group opposes me. It's another thing if I have to go and stand trial in court. It is a completely different thing. When your own mom or dad says you are wasting your life by following Jesus. Or if you're a little bit more in the mom and dad phase of life. It's a completely different thing. If your own son or your daughter tells you that you are wasting your life mom or dad. With your fanatical beliefs about Jesus. I mean there are a few things that cut deeper than these kinds of pain that we experience. Not just in opposition from those folk out there. But opposition sometimes from the people closest to us. Who mean the most to us. This is a real kind of pain. That we should expect. To face. In the pathway of following Jesus. Jesus. And what do we do when we face intense opposition, whether from other religious groups or from the government or from people we care deeply about? Jesus says so very explicitly in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and yet Innocent as doves. You know what's demanded of us when we realize that there will be opposition? Not that we prepare our fighting skills so that we really know how to punch back. But that we prepare our hearts so that we really know how to stand our ground in righteousness and holiness and humility. With innocence like doves. Wise as serpents, not being foolish and naive and gullible and just taken in by every scheming person out there. Wise as serpents, but not fierce as lions, innocent as doves. This is Jesus' way of preparing his disciples for mission in a world that will include real opposition. One of his disciples, Simon Peter, was there listening to these teachings. And he later wrote to a church full of believers to explain to that church how they should act. How they should live in light of this opposition that was coming. And Peter wrote to the church, beloved, 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What, what is Peter trying to communicate to the churches? What is this stuff about rejoicing insofar as you share Christ's sufferings? Well, I'll tell you what Peter is doing. He's just hearing what Jesus told him to prepare him for the mission that he was going on. And he's passing it on to the church to prepare her for the mission that she's sent on. In fact, here in Matthew chapter 10, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. In verses 24 and 25, there's this idea that opposition comes not so much because people hate us, but because other people are opposed to Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. And at this point, some of us are like, yes, sign me up to be like Jesus. And Jesus says, let me finish my sentence because I want to tell you what it's like to be like me. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, a demon. How much more will they malign those of his household? Let me go to a silly illustration here for a second. Maybe we need that once in a while in a heavy sermon. Justin Fields. You guys like him? Maybe we're a little salty because there was a loss today. We live in Chicagoland, home of Dub Bears. And for better or for worse, for the next few years, our guy is Justin Fields, number one. And I'll tell you, if he keeps getting better and better, and he keeps dominating games, you know what's going to happen the next time he marches out onto the grass at Lambeau Fields? Fierce opposition. Booze will rain down. I mean, they're salty because their own quarterback isn't so good anymore, right? Amen. Fierce opposition is what Justin Fields will experience the next time he sets foot out on that grass at Lambeau Field. And here's my question to you. If you make the drive up to the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field and you show up in your navy and orange, number one, Justin Fields jersey, what can you expect in the concourse there at Lambeau Field? Fierce opposition. Not because they got beef with you, not because they even know who you are, but because they see whose name you carry with you wherever you go. And in a similar way, I'm going to realize back to Jesus here, all right? Some of you are stuck in football, all right? Football's over for the day. The Bears lost. I'm sorry. It's hard. But Jesus is telling us, just as if you walk into Lambeau Field with a number one jersey on, you can expect to face opposition. Why? Because of their opposition to number one himself. If you go out on mission... With Jesus, you can expect to face opposition, not because people have beef with you even, but because of the one whose name you carry with you wherever you go, the name of Jesus. And what Peter began to understand throughout his life and what he wanted to pass on to the churches he spoke to is that there is something Precious, in a holy kind of way about suffering with Jesus. Suffering not because we've been a jerk to people in the concourse there at Lambeau Field. Suffering not because we've been a jerk to the co-workers or the people who live around us, but suffering because of the name that we're associated with. Peter has learned over time there's something precious about suffering with Jesus. Suffering on account of his name. And there's something that Christians can and must learn to treasure over time. In a world that was opposed to Jesus, as we are sent out on his mission to represent his kingdom bearing his name, we also need to learn to rejoice in so far as we share Christ's sufferings. That's the second lesson that we learn about a missionary's opposition. A third lesson that we need to learn from this passage relates to a missionary's fears. A missionary's fears. Jesus says in verse 26, Have no fear. He engages our fears. You've heard the saying before that courage is not so much a matter of having no fear as it is a matter of having the strength to overcome those fears. I think it's interesting that Jesus speaks to his disciples as people capable of courage. Which is to say he speaks to his disciples not as people who are unfamiliar with fear. If they were unfamiliar with fear in a frightening world, first of all, there would be something wrong with them. And secondly, there would be no need for Jesus to engage them and to pay attention to their fears, right? Jesus speaks to his disciples, not as people who know nothing of fear, but as people capable of courage by the power of God's spirit within them. People who won't just go out on mission and say, I'm fearless. But people who will go out on mission and face real opposition and be put in positions where all of a sudden fear is a part of the game. And Jesus speaks to his disciples as people capable of courage. People capable of not being mastered and dominated by those fears in such a way that they shrink back and withdraw from the mission. But people capable of stepping up and stepping forward in the face of their fears. And so continuing to engage in this kingdom representing mission to reach more lost sheep. For their good and for the glory of God. Jesus speaks to his disciples as people who know, who recognize, who understand what fear is. But what does Jesus say to them more specifically about their fears in order to teach them to step forward with courage instead of being smothered and chained and enslaved? By fears in the course of mission. Look with me if you would at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the first thing that he does is he kind of says. You're afraid of the wrong things. You're busy fearing people who can do some damage at a material level. But there's something deeper to pay attention to. Instead of being motivated by those who can kill your body but can't really kill your soul, instead of being motivated by them, be motivated by God. You know, a silly illustration, but you've got a phone. And we all know the problem by now of dropping a phone. This can happen, right? Yeah? Somebody's dropped a phone before. And there's just that heart-sinking moment when you're like, oh, no, right? And Jesus is saying those religious people who oppose you, the, the government officials who can drag you into courts, your own family members and people who you actually care about, you know the worst that they can do to you? They can kill you the worst that being dropped by them can do is just scuffing the $10 case that you kept your phone in. And Jesus is saying, instead of worrying about the $10 plastic case that you keep your phone in, worry about the one who can, who can destroy both the case and the phone itself. You're worried about the wrong things. You're being motivated by the wrong people's opinions. You're being judged. You're allowing your life to be motivated by judgment from the wrong courtroom. Instead, pay attention to, be motivated by the judgment of the one who sits on heaven's throne. Who can do far more than scuff up the outside of your phone case. And at first this just sounds like God is mean. Like some people are out to kill you, but I'll kill you worse. (laughs) Until we realize where Jesus goes next. You see, when... When we as disciples of Jesus begin to be motivated not so much by other people's judgments as by God's judgments, what do we discover next? We discover something precious about the heart of the one who truly judges us. Look with me if you would at the next verse here. Verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus first shifts our perspective away from the judgments of people and letting that be our driving motivation in life. To lift our eyes a little higher, to pay attention to the judgments of God, encouraging us to make that the driving motivation of our life. But then he goes still further and he says, look into the heart of the one who sits on that judgment throne. He cares about one bird that falls. He cares about one hair that falls from your head. I'm not going to make bald jokes, I promise. He cares about one bird that falls from the sky, one hair that that falls from your head. And listen to me, he cares more about you as one of his disciples than about any one of them. In other words, in the throne, in 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 the judgment seat, in the only throne room that ultimately matters, there sits a heart that loves you And cares about you and that will not let anything happen to you apart from your eternal good. Have no fear. Therefore. Which isn't to say there's nothing frightening in the world. It's not to say there's never moments of anxiety or heaviness in our hearts. But it is to say in those moments when we're confronted with how frightening life can feel. Because of his heart for us. We can when we turn our attention and our gaze to his heart for us. We can find the courage to step forward and keep going in what Jesus has called us to do. That's the lesson that we learn here about the missionaries fears. Fear not. Fear not for you are of more value to the one who sits on heaven's throne. But we come finally to one last issue that I want to draw our attention to. We've noticed the missionary's task and the missionary's opposition and the missionary's fears. We can't move on from this passage without seeing something about the missionary's promise. Look with me, if you would, at verse 38 and 39. 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then Jesus goes on to recount rewards that are given for the simplest of gestures Even offering a cup of cold water to a little one. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, He will by no means lose His reward for such a simple step that's taken in the service of the King. Here there is this great paradox that Jesus lays in front of us in verse 39. Whoever makes it his or her ambition to spend their life finding their own life will find in the end you've lost everything. You might even gain the world and yet find you forfeited your soul. And on the other hand, there is this beautiful promise. That empowers us to keep going on mission behind Jesus. To keep following him. Despite the challenges and the opposition and the darkness and the fears that may seek to slow us down. There is this beautiful promise. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a hard word in any time and in any culture because for in any time and in any culture, we love ourselves. We love our lives. It's like the one thing I don't want to lose. But this is doubly hard in our time and in our place, right? Because we live in an age of individualism. Whether it's the kind of the rugged individualism. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Or whether it's expressive individualism. It's my right to express myself however I feel. That's what leads to greatest joy. We live in an age of individualism. And so these words of Jesus sound almost cruel. To talk about losing our life. C.S. Lewis was a literature professor at Oxford University and in his little book called Mere Christianity he engages this issue of how precious our lives seem to us and how hard it seems to follow this teaching of Jesus that calls us to take up a cross which means knowing that we're moving our lives toward death. Why would we give up our life? And C.S. Lewis, this literature professor, begins to engage us on this issue, and he points out there are actually a lot of things in life that you can't find by looking for them. You want to be an original artist, he points out. Nobody becomes an original artist by thinking about making original art. You become an original artist by thinking about expressing something that's true. And very often that creates originality as a byproduct. And in a variety of other ways, we don't find what we're looking for by focusing on it. We only find what we're looking for by focusing on something else greater. In the same way, C.S. Lewis points out, this is how it works in our relationship with ourselves. You want to find your true self, who you are made to be? You won't find it by seeking to look within and stare at your true self and try to protect it at all costs. You want to know how to find your true self? C.S. Lewis wrote it beautifully, so I'm just going to read his words. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, Lewis urges. Don't try to hang on to some part of yourself that you say, oh, give God all of that, but I want this to be mine. No, keep back nothing. Because nothing you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. Look out for yourself. Protect yourself at all costs. And in the end, in the long run, you will find hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, decay. Isn't he speaking honestly about what we find if we live our lives seeking to protect ourselves? But look for Christ. Keep your eyes on Him. Follow Him. Look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Do you want to know how to find yourself? You want to know how to find that which is truly life? Turn your attention away from yourself. And turn your attention to Jesus. And that's when you'll find that you truly live. And this is the promise that Jesus lays before us, the promise that will keep us motivated in mission. Jesus was sending out his twelve to reach lost sheep in Israel. Today, when our service ends, we will lovingly cheer on our brothers and sisters as they go to serve sheep in Indonesia. Many of us will be called to go and love and serve sheep here in Illinois, whether through the foster care system or Wayside or Lifespring or Pick, or through that neighbor who lives next door or that coworker that God has said out of all the places on the planet, I'm putting him or her right there on your team. And here's the missionary's promise that Jesus sends us out with. He tells us that the kingdom mission is worth living for and if necessary, even dying for. And this is according to Jesus who lived and even died for lost sheep in Israel, and in Indonesia, and in Illinois, and in every part of the planet. And so, brothers and sisters, here is our call come to the Good Shepherd. Maybe some of us feel like we're limping in toward the good shepherd today. Know that he is a good shepherd who loves lost and hurting and wandering and wounded and limping sheep. Come to the good shepherd. And then here is your happy task. Go and tell others about how good he is. Wherever you are.